Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. What do you think of the new theme music? It's a little bit more lo-fi than we're used to. We are in the tunnels that go underneath Hyde Park Corner. We're here for very good reason. I'm here with Ben Judah, and he's the author of This Is London. Hi. Now, I know you slept down here a little bit for the writing of the book we're about to talk about, and we'll sketch out what the book is before we dive in too deep. But was this guy playing when you were trying to sleep? No, he wasn't, but I spent a lot of time with another musician who lived down here who was a fiddler who had come from Romania to busk and beg in the area. And I'm really interested in these tunnels that run under Hyde Park Corner because I think that they are a frontier between two of the Eastern Europeans and worlds in London we never see. One, which is the world of uh, Roma beggars and Romanian kind of labourers who land at Victoria Coast Station, which is so nearby. And the other is the world of the super rich, which is just above us, because uh, Belgravia and Mayfair are just minutes away where bricks are worth uh, hundreds of thousands of pounds each, and whole mansions are now the bitcoins of kleptocrats. And this is a weird liminal space, which at night turns into a street sleeper city or a almost Romanian village of beggars living down here and I join them. Well, mul- multiple villages, in fact. And multiple, yeah. Uh, all the way up um, part lane towards Speaker's Corner at the top are different clusters of uh, Roma from different parts of Romania who don't trust each other, who are from different backgrounds and different villages here for s- sometimes slightly different, sometimes similar reasons. And there's something quite spooky about the the paintings on the walls here. Firstly, because they are these line drawings of the glories and the splendours of Victorian London, men in top hats, red coats, and the poverty is edited out of every one of them. There are these images of Park Lane in 1804 and of Buckingham Palace and Marble Arch, only with the wealthy there. I mean, that's sort of spooky. When I was living down here with uh, the Roma, we'd often sort of fall asleep discussing these line drawings of what they meant what were they and they keep on asking me about Buckingham Palace above who exactly was she the queen that lived there how much power did she have is she like the president of Romania is she the person who has all the power in Britain or not why doesn't she do anything for us I wonder if we need to draw some lines or at least acknowledge some spectra before we go too much further in because we're going to be talking about different groups of people and we're necessarily, I guess, going to be talking about immigration. That seems to play quite a large part in the book, This Is London. But of course, not all immigrants end up sleeping in a tunnel down here, as indeed not all all reporters do. No, no. (laughs) Um, Well, the idea of uh, the book was to tell a portrait of the new London, and London's become a sort of immigrant megacity over the last few decades. And London wasn't always like this. If you go back to 1931 and you look at the census, just 2.7% of the London population was... uh, born abroad. Today the official figure is 37% and if you take in immigrants and their children, over 55% of uh, London is uh, an immigrant or or his families and uh, children or grandchildren. And that's an extraordinary transformation, turning what was, even though it was the capital of an empire, in some ways quite parochial 
northern European city into a kind of unreal, almost unimaginable place from the perspective of the 1930s or the, the 1950s. So the idea of the book was to write about this like a foreign correspondent, to approach it... Uh, in the same way that one would write about Russia, or one would write about India, or about uh, Israel or Palestine, to go there and actually do the reporting, to go and listen to the people of this new city to tell their stories, to see it from their point of view. So the book has uh, 25 chapters, and each of them are from the point of view of different immigrants. Some of them super rich, some of them super poor, some of them who live in Mayfair mansions, some of them who live on the street, some of them who have been transformed and made by London into what they always dreamed of being, others who have been broken by London. And the idea was to, to write a book which reflected the real London, which is not anymore the middle class or the upper class or the working class, old English, British London, of EastEnders or of BBC costume dramas. Well, EastEnders is actually quite an interesting idea. If we were to look at, for example, Whitechapel, then we obviously have a history of a wave after wave of immigration and the, the idea of people arriving from overseas and setting up camp and displacing the previous lot wouldn't be at all strange to them. So is this just a question of where we draw the circle? Well, if you look back at London history, it's very interesting that... There are, of course, have always been in London, ever since Roman times, traders um, from the Middle East, uh, Lombard bankers, French cheese salesmen. There have always been foreigners in the city who made it their home and become, become Londoners. But that was usually concentrated in very specific places. It was concentrated in the 18th and 19th century. It was heavily concentrated in Whitechapel. And if you went there, you would have found from the 18th century uh, onwards a world of uh, Sephardic and Ashkenazi Jewish tailors and tradesmen, a world of uh, Bengali Laskars who were there from the 18th century. But it was quite a small percentage of London demographically. It was not the majority of the city. And London, in terms of percentages, was much less multicultural than Paris, than uh, Alexandria, than Istanbul, than uh, any of the cities that Britain would have ruled, like Calcutta. So I think that there has been a real change in London. Beyond the reportage of it... And even then I could ask the question, what, what's your stake in the investigation? I think that it's really important to think about cities and to work out what cities actually are and how they work. And I think that we approach them um, not with a much, as much depth and much analysis, which is why I love the Londoners, because it goes into such depth. And London is so huge and so complicated. It's got a population larger than Austria or larger than Israel. And... You wouldn't go, I live in Austria, with that kind of declamatory, I know everything about it, sense that people would about London. And I don't think people really live in cities. People say I live in a city, but in fact what people live in is in very specific, tiny, tiny, tiny little transport grooves, one or two pubs, one or two friends' homes you might go to, very repetitive, tight little coils. And if you open your iPhone if you've got one and you flip around the back of it Apple's got this quite eerie trucking service it does of your movements and you can see these maps that your iPhone is making of where you go and it is shocking how repetitive it is and in those grooves I think you miss the extraordinary complexity of London and how there are so many parallel different worlds this is what my book's about my book is was my kind of obsession to acquaint myself with where I actually live and to find out as much about it and to see as much as I could of it, to see what's life, what's life like in Polish London, Nigerian London, in Filipina London, what's life like in Pakistani London, what's life like in kind of oligarch London, in Saudi London, in, uh, in Russian London. So I guess my stake in it was just how curious I was because I, you, I increasingly um, get the sense that because there aren't enough local reporters there isn't enough actual reporting going on in 
the British media in general um, because the media is not structured in that way there's no like breaking news from uh, from Waterstow in the way that there is from uh, Cairo or, or, Ga- or, or Gaza uh, actually I think that's rubbish I think there's, uh, there's breaking news all over the place <laughs> if one cares to look I think yeah, sure, sure. one of the problems it seems to me is the local newspaper business model which seems to be a franchised out string of local newspapers which vary little from one title to the next basically it, a vehicle for the ad it's so depressing and I think that that was one of the reasons that I, I wrote this book to try and to get as many of the stories and the senses of what London is like that I don't think we get anymore the inspiration to write it came from a lot of my thoughts about about journalism I used to work as a foreign correspondent I worked in Russia and when I was working in Russia I was shuttling to and fro across uh, across Siberia in the Caucasus I had a chance to meet sort of crooked ministers and uh, sort of alcoholic policemen and the occasional saintly figure and doing it I realised that the foreign correspondent isn't just an increasingly rare job it's also like a way of writing it's a, a style in which you go out you go away from the newsroom you get out from the press conference you go away from the seat of power you bring in the voices of uh, normal people and little people and you show what does it look like from the the slums of Mahachkala what does Russia look like from the mining colonies of the north and when I came back to I live in Britain, I start opening newspapers. We don't write about our country that way. We just have polls, 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 more and more and more polls, 50% this, 42% that, 48 52 More and more polls is one of the, the major issues as far as certain portions of the polity go. Of course, and we have interviews with, uh, with politicians or profiles of politicians or repackaged uh, press releases, and there's not enough actual reporting. There's not enough going into a society that's changed a lot more and a lot faster than I think most people realise, especially London. I mean, this has been a prime time for your book to come out, hasn't it? Well, with the referendum, it couldn't be more timely. And yet, what I didn't hear too much of in all of the debates that were going on around immigration were individual stories. There were big statistics, there were emotions churned up, but relatively few, actually. They were simple and straightforward, and, and this is what we think. There didn't seem to be too much in the way of exemplary material to base our decisions on. I think a lot of it comes from the unfortunate way that we tend to write about uh, immigrants. and both. Uh, How do we tend to write about immigrants? I think both the left and the right, and I think both people who are pro-immigration, anti-immigration, have a tendency to uh, objectify these people and to make them morality tales. Either they're pure victims or they're pure, or they're pure baddies. They're turned into numbers, they're turned into sort of faceless uh, statistics changing our, uh, our country or like a mass of people who are described as swarms or any of this sort of animalistic uh, uh, language either within or without of our society. So what I wanted to do in this book was to, to, to take 25 Londoners who'd made this city their, their home who come from abroad and to just see it from their eyes and also like not to censor it. I think that we live in a very censorious period and because of Twitter and trolling and Facebook and uh, all of these different campaigns about language which I think have substituted for the left a lot of actual campaigns about changing the, the eco- changing the economy. People are very nervous about saying the right or the wrong thing. Well, I think that as journalists often without realising it we uh, sculpt our, our interviewees um, when we present them, clip little bits out, and we're just going to take that out. That might be the readers might not like that. So what I wanted to do in this book was present what people say and how they really say it, like bald. This must make you ideal for not just being sculpted and buffed up, <laughs> but having the uh, the agenda of the interviewer projected all over you. You're writing about this hot button topic. Oh, um, I should imagine that you might find yourself having to defend uh, yourself from all sides. Uh, e- yeah, no, I have found that a lot of people on the. Uh, the left have been annoyed that I present a lot of things that are sort of truths happening in London that uh, they felt sort of undermined the case for Remain, such as the fact that uh, you know most street sleepers in London are now um, from Eastern Europe, the fact that all around the A406, outside the Wicks or outside the B&Q, you have... Uh, 50 to 100 guys just touting for work there, none of whom are paid a minimum wage, all of whom are you know, going to get their, their work without insurance uh, Ill- illegally. And that's just. But then again, also the, the uh, right were very annoyed for me because I, I did actually uh, vote uh, Remain and was very vocal about that on, on Twitter. They can't win. 
And I think when you're not winning with either of the political camps, you're probably doing quite well. I was struck by your access, in a way, because, well, I need to, to come back a step, I suppose, because the, the obvious London trait is that under any circumstances, including if you're nose-to-nose on the tube, you do not talk to other people. That is the golden rule. We all spot the <laughs> foreigner because they speak to somebody that they don't know. Um, so you're already stepping over that threshold. And in a way, I can see how the rather trite thing to observe would be the interaction between people at those junctions in their lives. You're talking about the patterns yeah. we have on the back of our iPhones. Yeah. And clearly we're going to run into people just for brief moments during the day. What I guess I'm more interested in is um, you getting to talk to some of those people where we're living in parallel with their lives, whatever that means, and you are just sort of nudging yourself onto the other side of the tracks for a while to see what happens. Can you talk about some of those kind of parallel setups? How do I find people? Well, I'm interested in entry points that we don't see. And one of they can be physical or they can be people. One of the entry points I'm really fascinated by is High Park, um, just near High Park Corner in Victoria Coach Station. This is the Ellis Island of contemporary London that's what Victoria Coach Station is it's our sort of hidden miserable Ellis Islands that's where the buses roll in from Eastern Europe where thousands of migrants land uh, every week to start a new life in Britain and that's a fascinating place to go if you want to find people you want to see people arriving ask people like, what are their first impressions of uh, Britain and what's drawn them here and one of the things that I was so interested about and I've been thinking about a lot is people are drawn to London because London in the villages of Eastern Europe or in the villages of uh, Bangladesh or or in Africa it glows it hums it sort of stirs up dreams and promising to change you and what's doing that like what is it that's tempting these uh, people here to what is a really hard tough life with uh, no good job guaranteed I think the answer is actually TV is that we live half in the brackets real world and half in the brackets virtual world and if you are even in a kind of clapped out industrial town in Poland you're going to be spending hours a day staring into screens and what you're going to see in those screens is advertising or drama designed for the richest people in the richest parts of uh, the developed world so you know what the higher spec kitchen looks like you know what London what Paris what New York looks like you know what the interior of a super wealthy man's uh, house looks like and this is tempting you it's tempting you to go and you see this right across the world and one of the most interesting reporting experiences I, I had in the former Soviet Union is I was travelling around in uh, Tajikistan and Tajikistan is by human development index level it's like an, an African country in Central Asia. It's a very, very poor and undeveloped uh, country. It's really struggled ever since the the Soviet uh, Russian forces pulled out, effectively turning off the light. I remember being in an area called the Pamir Heights, and it's so high it, there is no vegetation. It's so high there are no birds. So high there are no animals. But there are people there who live off the road, and the people there are very good, kind people. They're very unused to travellers, and during the month I spent travelling through there, not once did I pay for a bed, because people were willing to to take me in. And one day I was staying with a family, and they had brought a TV from a Chinese peddler. Put this TV in the house, I turned on the the TV, it somehow connected to a a satellite, I presume it was a, a Chinese satellite, I'm not entirely sure. And the show came up, and it was called Sex and Tequila. It's an American show, and there were all these these sort of hot buff couples just sort of jiggling around in a swimming pool drinking tequila sharing these confessions uh, of their lives and this poor Tajik farming family that was watching this started going to me America? Is that America? Is that America? Then I went off and travelled around in the, the mountains for some days and I came back and the family had been thrown into misery buy this TV. The mother, she was devastated. Now she knew what an expensive kitchen looked like. The son, he was devastated. Now he knew what fun, what amazing lives people were having in earlier. And this show, Sex and Tequila, had ruined their balance in the place they were living. Because it inserted the virtual reality of the richest people into the world, into the daily lives of the poorest. And the youngest boy was already creating plans to leave, to go. The dream city in Central Asia is Moscow. But in Eastern Europe, in 
the subcontinent, in swathes of Africa, and even South America, like London, is the the dream city. So how, how have we achieved that? Because as you've been talking, I've of course been thinking about the jungle situation over in Calais, and that question of why it is that so many people are passing through other Western countries to get to specifically London. So I understand the exporting of Western values, but why London? It's it, well because London is one of the stars of TV. Is was London the promise of London? The red buses, the the wealth, the job, the jobs, the whole advertising machine of London. How London is just so embedded in cinema and films, and the greatest characters in Western cinema are New York and, and London and Paris. It's not the actors; it's the those cities, like sort of lusciously lit at night, which really. Um, kind of grip the imagination and people are coming for that they want to be in it they want to see it they want to have it they want to be part of it and national myths they don't they haven't flowed in exactly the same way into the 20th century they stir the heart much less when I was living in the tunnels under Hyde Park Corner TV came up very quickly and there was one guy there who called himself uh, the lawyer who was sort of blubbing and was devastated saying that he was tricked by TV he was tricked by what he called the London State he was tricked by the promise of the red buses of uh, the city and he had come from a small town in the Moldova region of uh, Romania and watching this this t- these, this TV that um, was on satellite or uh, the, these dubbed British comedies which uh, people watch all over the rest of the world had made him long to, to come to London. And the reality that he'd found was that turning up like a 21st century Romanian uh, Dick Whittington was uh, sleeping on a cardboard box in the tunnels where we just were and that was devastating uh, for him. And I found that in lots of these stories uh, as I went through this, this journey. It took two years to find these people and just really get inside their heads and learn how they uh, see the world, that people come to London because they've watched almost all of the TV series that we watch. People are watching the rest of the world just in Amharic or just in Arabic or just in Turkish or just in Polish because uh, one of Britain's biggest exports is uh, TV shows. People have arrived with all of that promise, and the reality they find is like mopping up sick uh, from the back of a minicab, or it's being the night cleaner in a giant uh, glass skyscraper in the city of London, like hoovering 100 square metres of carpet like every night at four in the morning, because that's the only time that the bankers aren't there. And that kind of the pain and the clash of uh, dreams and realities is is really really painful in uh, 21st century uh, migrant London. One of the things that I was often told, many of the people I met, this was the story that they experienced, is that they'd come to London, they'd come to the golden city, and the jobs that they ended up were jobs where they either cleaned it, they guarded it, they waited it, they built it, but they were never really there. People had come from uh, Polish or Hungarian villages and they found themselves in Mayfair tiling the floor before getting the tube and the bus out to uh, sort of unknown zones into the, in outer London living in sort of cramped uh, doss houses where guys are sleeping five to ten to uh, a room. And that was a very painful experience. Uh, while you've been talking, I, I don't know, <laughs> listener, whether you've detected this from the variation in volume but my guest is a very animated speaker you've been moving back and forth and flailing your hands around and describing what you're talking about and it got me thinking about the way in which you approach uh, sketching somebody uh, you mentioned in the book that you're scribbling away on a notepad as you go which I guess could be distracting it also takes your eyes off the person yeah. to some degree but if roles were reversed here and I was to do a sketch of you in your style what would be the first things that I would be picking up on what's what's your approach well a lot of the book was created via my phone and all of the speech that you see in the book is as far as is possible a direct recording of what that person was saying so the dialogue is actually what they said it's not trimmed it's not taken from a from a notebook so I would record everything the person was saying and I would encourage them to go on and on and on and on and on, kind of like, what, what, you, what you're doing? <laughs> Say as much as, pos- as possible. And in whilst I was, do- I was doing that, I would be trying to 
kind of draw them as much as possible in my notebook. Like, what are they wearing? How are they moving their hands? What kind of shoes are they wearing? Is it literally a picture of them? Yeah, sometimes literally a picture of them, and some or just every single word I could use to describe how they how they were, and try and get lots of descriptions of what was going on uh, uh, around them as well, and how they related uh, to space as well, and also how they related to me. Because there's the long-known journalistic problem potentially, particularly as we've moved into the age of dictaphones and, and audio recorders, that a notepad ha- is is a sort of it reminds people of taking evidence. It reminds them of officialdom in some way. I wonder whether, particularly with the the, the crew that you were talking to, whether that caused any problems. Uh, people expect journalists to have a notebook and if you just sit there recording it just chilling out people think you're not doing your job properly so that 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 can be uh, important sometimes I actually use a notebook it just helps me remember things and uh, like a lot of the first drafts of chunks of the book were actually written on my iPhone notes like trying to fresh get like how am I how am I seeing seeing this but uh, I think recording and then typing out what the recording was that's the the skeleton of uh, of the book for dialogue and speech. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, get, moving back a step from that, though, and thinking about the first moment when your gaze lights on this person or that person, or maybe there's some other way by which you're introduced to them. Mm. How do you make your selections? Well, like entry points can be places; they can also be people. And if you're trying to get into the these worlds that are not your world, you need guides. And one of the the best kind of guides are translators because in every police station, in every hospital, in every moment where people who've just arrived from Eastern Europe or Africa or wherever come into contact with the, the British state, there'll be a translator being there as the interface. And the translators are the people who map. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Uh, Migrant London and who know, know the best. And I was taken into these worlds through these uh, through these guides a lot of them I talk about in the in the book and something I really wanted to do in the the book was show as far as is possible like how journalism is done and show people well the comedy the, 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 the mess of it and also how a lot of the time it involves the grammar of a detective novel right you've got to you, you've got to find ways to kind of infiltrate often these worlds where people don't want you uh, to be and so a lot of this book uh, took place under to cover, like living in uh, DOS houses or uh, going to sort of tout at illegal labour exchanges, the places that I couldn't have come with my notebook and uh, my iPhone, sort of <laughs> waving it around to get the <laughs> exact tone of people's voices. And you sometimes launch in the, particularly in the descriptive passages into something that's a little bit bigger than merely factual you know you're creating color and space and a, a sense of the thing creating an impression well, uh, it's all factual well i don't know there's nuance added by your choice of language I, I think you you paint a picture oh um well yes yeah, yeah but it's just how i yeah so it's just well, i'm trying to describe the the world and give it as much emotional content as as i can but there are a lot of my impressions thrown in there and like my questions and my Tensions and fears and doubts or, or, or whatever. So there's a lot of that in there. 
in the mix. Yeah, the kind of stuff I like to read is non-fiction that, that reads like fiction, and I don't see any reason that journalism can't be sort of really beautiful and can't be a, an art form. So I'm trying to do that as well. And it's been described as epic and various other things. I don't know whether you would... I mean, you couldn't not agree with that, could you? <laughs> of, course, of course it's epic. It's more than epic. I like the word epic, though, yeah, because right. well, the, all of these people's journeys are epics. Uh, well, one of the reasons that I'm interested in immigrant storytelling is I'm Jewish and my grandparents are immigrants, and every immigrant family is its own epic of arrival, is its own Ulysses-style story of how grandpa or grandma got the passport and ended up in this country and not in that one and avoided on these dangerous often incredibly dangerous treks to get uh, to get here uh you know huge dangers and i grew up like listening to the these stories of uh, escapes from the the nazis or migrations from uh, india through the middle east uh, to london and every time they were slightly different because uh these are stories told by people getting increasingly the older and you know, every family of immigrant heritage has that suitcase full of stories. And it made me really interested to sort of hear everybody else's. And I think immigrant storytelling is different from the storytelling that people who don't have immigrant heritage have. Because in their cases, stories are about uh, a place. They're not about a journey. They're about a village. They're about a town. They're about uh, a landscape. But if you, you're uprooted and you've, you're coming to, to London... The, your origin myths revolve around the journey itself. And that was what made me want to sort of hunt out and find as many of these stories as possible. I can't quite swallow what you've just said there. That doesn't sound you right to me. No, well, no, and I'm not coming from the position that you are, of course. And I can understand what connects up the immigrant sure. stories, the various immigrant stories. But is, is it necessarily the case that somebody who has not been through an immigrant story is necessarily connected to their place? I mean, I suppose one aspect of this would be what would you call immigration because that relocation could happen over a much shorter distance or over an emotional distance from one cultural setting to another of course like there, there should be a far like finer gradient to it but well, in the case of the book it was people coming into this state hmm. and entering a new kind of world of law a new world of uh, usually language that was the the definition uh, I use, but of course, there's elements of that experience. That people come from different parts of the country and come to, to London. People who've moved in from Milton Keynes seem quite culture shocked by Walthamstow, but I'm sure there's something slightly bigger to be said. One of the characters, uh, well, the people—they're not characters; they're real people still doing doing these jobs. One of the guys I profiled in the book was uh, an Afghan who'd come on this whole journey to to Europe, and like his origin story of London, and that will be the origin story of his family is. British family that I'll have here is this incredible journey of getting across the the desert of Pakistan and slipping through Iran and surviving going over the mountains when the Turks fired at the group and then coming over the borders into to Europe and how you had to sleep rough and uh, sounding a lot like southern trains <laughs> um, but and I don't I think if you come from Milton Keynes you that kind of epic Maybe parts of it on seven trains, but it won't be quite the same scale. It won't be the, the family legend in the, in the same way. I think I agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think my concern was that thinking about all the... I certainly see what you're saying about uh, people who've migrated, but I just wonder whether there only being one reverse is accurate. You know, I was thinking about how one sees the people who are on the other side of that experiential line and whether they actually are a, a homogenous maths or not. No, of course not, of course not, not at all. But what I wanted to do in this book was to give voices to the people that, who don't have their, their, their columnists, who don't have their kind of regular features in the, in the, the Guardian or the Telegraph or their place uh, in the media. What, why um, is it that these people, uh, these people, why is it that these people are, are less well exposed? Well, either they don't want people to see them in the case of the super rich, like the a lot of my journey went into sort of infiltrating the world of the Qatari and Russian super rich and they don't want people to know how they live people who work for them they make them sign these non-disclosure agreements so they can't give interviews without being legally prosecuted for sometimes up to decades uh, afterwards or you know they're very poor and uh, they're very poor and they live in places that are forgotten or in roles that are forgotten by, by the rest of society well, so uh, that sounds like a much bigger challenge. And how did you get it uh, mixed up with those guys, the uh, the very wealthy? 
Well, my first book was a study of Putin and Putin's Russia, so that gave me a lot of the connections and the ins, and uh, I actually got to meet some... uh, oligarchs including Berezovsky before he died in these sort of mysterious uh, circumstances just around there actually uh, down street just there's where I met Berezovsky and so that gave me an in into that world and yet they didn't demand the same secrecy of you well, a lot of them did, which is why they didn't turn up with the book. Like, the, <laughs> the people in the book are the people I managed to get their stories uh, out. There were so many hundreds of people that I tried to, to get in. Either their stories so I weren't good enough, or I realised halfway through they were making them up, or they the, the first half of the story was great, the second half was boring, or they wouldn't they just wouldn't do it. Uh, yeah, so they, they could, the book could have been five times the, the size if everyone had been in. <laughs> oh, that's fascinating. Well, now, now we're back to what we started with, which was uh, the issue of the selection on the part of the journalist. Well, when I began the process of doing this book, I had this sort of anthropologist's checklist. Rich, poor, from Russia, from Poland, from Afghanistan, tick, tick, tick. And in the process of doing that, I realised, like, no, this is not the way you're going to reveal the city. That's not actually how you'll see the the most of it and the readers will see the most of it which is that London is in fact more different I realise doing this if you're 15, 18, 25, 50 you've got dementia, you're 90 the way you are in the rhythm of your life is shapes more how London will, will be different and so the book is structured along this arc of life like it begins with people who've just arrived because immigration's a bit like birth it's a, it's a new life and then it follows that arc of people trying to get work, people falling in love, people succeeding, people failing, people being transformed, people making it, people having kids, people going through the difficult process of uh, raising kids when you're not originally from this country, uh, people people getting old and people dying. The book ends uh, in a mosque in um, Leighton uh, in Death where I managed to interview a gentleman there who prepares and washes the bodies before burial who was telling me like the sense of summation he felt of being the guardian of these uh, people's lives as they prepared to, to depart so that became one element of the selection process and the other element of the selection process I realised is I interviewed so many people that didn't make it into the book and often I'd meet people who I'd been told had incredible stories and they just couldn't couldn't express them I'd be like well how did you feel when you arrived well I felt good and how has it been the next six months oh it was difficult and then I realised no what you're looking for is not just people who've had these experiences you're looking for storytellers and this was quite a frightening experience doing the book because I realised that the storytelling ability is is random it's randomly distributed some of the best storytellers I've I've ever met are chew pickers uh, picking out kind of packets of crisps and evening standards on the Bakerloo line or their plasterers you know working out on the the touting spots and so all of the people in the book they have that in common that they're storytellers and I only realised that's why I've been doing it at the end that's interesting when I'm thinking about fiction you have exactly the same issue that it's very difficult to write a story from the point of view of a taciturn person <laughs> uh, for, for obvious reasons does that self-selection spin things in a particular direction does it mean that you end up with people with a flair for the dramatic one of the um, chapters in this book like, involves me discussing the nature of stories with uh, one of the guys that I, uh, I profiled. And he actually challenged me on that point. When if you're looking for stories, you're never going to meet anyone who's going, oh, I had a great lunch and it was good, thanks very much. <laughs> that does to a degree, yeah. But not in terms of uh, happy or sad, not in terms of success or failure. People are, in fact, more proud to tell stories of their success, their, achie- their achievements, their loves than they are of their, their failures. But I think it does strip out a lot of the boredom that most life is composed of for the most part. Can I chuck two questions at you at once, although they're not closely related? One is, I wanted to ask you about the dimension of truth in what you're doing. Sure. Uh, or what you, what you were doing and how you not only handled presenting yourself but also I guess we've, maybe we've covered it already but uh, the different ways that truth manifests itself in, in your writing how you truly represent somebody how, how truthfulness you know do you nudge the story along a little bit if you're missing that crucial sentence or something that you feel would help or you know is there any leeway there so that whole issue of truth yeah. would be one thing but also to what extent you feel a duty of 
care. And I've got in my mind specifically if you've got somebody at a fairly low ebb and you're asking them to rehearse that low ebb and then you're going to bugger off. Uh, is there a, a way in which you approach that? Well, and also there's an element of how do you know... One of the things that I found doing this is... If you ask people to tell you the stories of their lives, often you find they don't quite add up. And one of the... That was an issue of truth that I, I found. Often I started profiling people running out there, their whole lives, and suddenly I realised that things weren't making sense, that some things, uh, some things couldn't uh, have happened. So in terms of trust, one of the, the people who are in the book, these people that I have trusted, and that I trust them, and I trust these stories, that's why they're there. In terms of... Were they right to trust you? Well, most of them have the book. Most of them are very, very happy with it. Mm-hmm. So, were, were you exactly as you packaged yourself? Well, there are part, There are several chapters in the book where you can't access those places as a, a journalist. So, if you to go and live in the doss houses of uh, Far East London, I couldn't live there as a, a journalist. So, when I went into that world, I had to take on this line. I had to pretend that I was a labourer from Ukraine. I speak Russian, and this allowed me to slip in. So they thought I was a labourer from Ukraine and they were giving me advice about like, how to improve my English and what kind of bosses I would, I would want to get. So were they right to trust me? In one sense, no. They were, it was stupid of them to, to, to trust me, even though there's no way they would have told. But were they right to trust me in the wider sense? People I know about the, these shocking Dickensian conditions in which people like them live and they're not happy about living in. Um, I think they were. And one of the things that really shocked me and that not been reported that many other places it's just the scale of how in poor eastern european london health and safety is optional minimum wage is optional and in order to show that i had to kind of go undercover and assume these uh, uh, other identities and i write a lot in the book about what that was like and about how i had to train myself in order to to carry these these lies and these covers i think that in secret policemen they call it like the legend how that worked, what that was like. I'll ask you about the duty of care as well, of course. But well, one of the the ways in which I took that very seriously is I didn't want to put anybody's full names in there. I didn't want them to be Googleable. And it was uh, one chap who requested that, and then I thought, well, that's a very good, very good idea. So anybody who wanted to to be in the book, I went, can I take a photo of you to show the people reading the book that these people are real and this is what they are and this is who they are. But I thought full names. I didn't want their names to be sort of searchable online in case they were trying to get a job uh, elsewhere so that's one one point uh, that i took but what about the emotion uh, i know having interviewed people about their uh, yeah things that matter to them and sometimes things that aren't so uh, such positive experiences that when the interview comes to an end actually they can be quite delicate quite vulnerable um i don't know whether you found that in what you were doing well, I think if you believe in journalism, you believe in the purpose of, of interviewing them. Well, I'm not, I'm not suggesting uh, drawing back from the questions. I'm thinking yeah. about how you handled the, the interview and the post-interview and uh, what duty of care you felt towards the interviewing. Well, sometimes it's upsetting if someone's told you these stories of going into a, a very dark place. But people relate to you in different ways as a journalist. Sometimes people relate to you as the state you've come down from some sort of high place and you're here and they've been waiting their whole lives to complain about the British state and they're going to tell you. Sometimes they treat you as like a stranger on the train. You're like a sort of mysterious friend, they found you and they're going to tell you their secrets in the sense that you're going to disappear now. And this was a chance for them to offload the, the stories that have been on them for a, a long time. Sometimes, especially with like very rich or super rich people, they didn't really understand what an interview was and they'd be going, what's the right answer to this question? What do you want me to say? I thought it was a, a, a theatre play. And often I found that people who have very difficult, badly paid jobs, they'd never told their stories before. It was a very magical and quite touching experience to have people tell their whole life stories and to see as they realised these connections that were there and they hadn't seen these, these patterns. Uh, more often than not, when I ask people to tell their whole stories of how they got from Ghana or Nigeria or, or Afghanistan or Ukraine to, to London, often there was this incredible flash of, of satisfaction <laughs> that they'd surmounted these huge dangers or they'd survived these horrible twists. 
Mm. And that was quite beautiful to see. Uh, tell me a bit more about becoming Ukrainian. Well, one of the ways to, that I did this undercover, uh, and I've got a, a film in which I do it again, uh, coming out on Vice uh, in about a month, is I have a Romanian friend, and I went in with him. He made the calls, phoning up and saying, hi, I'm here for work, I'm here, I've got a mate, this is a Romanian, he's from Ukraine. We would go in and we, the most important things we went through were haircuts and were getting the, the right clothes and looking the part. And I would be there just behind him, he navigated through, and he would often be the kind of interface, uh, uh, the, the interface with them. And the reason that I chose a Ukrainian personality, is, and we went into these Romanian places, is firstly is that there were only going to be Romanians there, and they're not an expert on uh, Ukraine or what's what, uh, what's what. And also in the case that there was a Ukrainian there, Half of Ukraine speaks Russian, half of it speaks uh, Ukrainian. You could just pretend to be from the other one. <laughs> Clever. So a lot, yeah, so a lot of sort of cunning went into this. But the whole process made me very frightened about clothes. And I hadn't realised how powerful clothes were, what they say. When you, if you go and you work on these building sites, you wear those Eastern European clothes, people just treat you differently. You feel it, you sense it. And that's made me realise there's a lot more power in kind of uh, clothes than I realised before and be quite frightened of them. Yeah, that's an interesting word you're using there, frightened. What have you um, got in your mind? I just didn't realise how clothes could shape your relationship with a whole society. Seems, it seems in some way quite obvious, doesn't it, that, that people uh, treat... Oh, we've, we've all seen the... Uh, the YouTube experiment where the same guy goes into McDonald's and asks for a um, bit of ketchup or something once dressed as a vagrant and once dressed as a yuppie. It's like one thing to know that and it's another to like actually feel it, to feel those eyes kind of burn on you when you're, when you're doing it. And that really rammed home that point to me. That, that was a shock. Like I knew it notionally. I didn't know that's how it felt. Are you playing around the edges of, of, of a fear that's, that's already there in you in some way? You mentioned the immigrant story. I wonder sure. if you're testing the boundaries of, of the experience in some way. Well, maybe subconsciously. I didn't, didn't know. But, um, well, a lot of it came out of my ideas about journalism and what a journalist should and shouldn't be doing and about what I, just, what I wanted to read and how I think that there's just too much comment in, about Britain and in British journalism over there. More and more commentators, they're getting bigger and bigger and bigger. They have their own YouTube channels, they're leaving the Conservative Party or rejoining it, and they don't do reporting. And they don't, they, when they do do reporting, they do it with these preconceived notions, which are basically party political. And there's not enough going in with an open mind just to listen to people, to get the real stories of real, real people. You talked about the journey that people are making through their lives. Yeah. Where are you at, as far as your journey goes? Oh, because you've clearly travelled a load. Are you now at the stage where you're starting to identify with one particular place, or are you just setting out? Or? Uh, diff- uh, a very difficult question. I, I went through like a long phase of like travelling around Siberia and South America and the Middle East, and wanting to go to as many cities as possible. And I realised that I was basically living on maps and that I was living on this pin that was moving around and I was getting this enormous thrill out of uh, just seeing my geolocate in the middle of Siberia. And actually I was learning very little because you can do it so quickly now. And I've got a lot more into like getting to know cities deeply now and to going to the same places and going deep further and further down. I think it's very easy to like city break about and business trip about and think you're travelling but actually you're not travelling anywhere because you're going to hotels that all look the same you're meeting other people just like you who all do the same thing in my case it would be other journalists who write about kind of politics and societies it could be other people who work in IT it could be other people who work in uh, business development it could be other people who work in banking or law or, 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 or tourism or, or, or whatever and I think that's an illusion and I think that in terms of like getting further away from yourself and your groove you can actually do it more by going down so I've started going a lot more to a few cities and going very deep in them and trying to know them better like one is Paris and the other is uh, Tel Aviv hmm. and are either of those the next project? Uh, I would like to write about Israel one day but there's a tradition in Judaism which with 
uh, with a mystical form of knowledge called Kabbalah, which, according to the old sort of uh, rabbinic adage, you're not supposed to to go into this form of mysticism until you're uh, sort of age 40 and you have three children and you're sort of settled down. The reason being that you can that it's a sort of thing that young men would often get wrong. And I think in writing about Israel, I'd like to sort of come to that from uh, a, a, not from the perspective of somebody who's 28, but somebody who's who's older. I think that there's a lot that I don't get now, and I will, will only get uh, then. So what is the next project? Well, so I'm thinking a lot about the nature of books, and I mentioned Paris. I'm very interested in France, but I'm wondering if whether or not you can still have news books by journalists in the 21st century. Because I think, contrary to what a lot of other people, journalists think, I think people are better informed than they uh, now than they were before. Because of Wikipedia, it's the 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 golden age of the 5,000 word uh, essay and I think people are well informed of the headline issues about what's going on in France I'm trying to work out whether those are a thing of the past like the foreign correspondence, my last five years in Russia my last five years in uh, in France increasingly edging towards that but I'm not sure so I'm still thinking <laughs> and in the meanwhile uh, caught up in the echo chamber that follows any publication well it was cool to talk about Brexit and uh, debate all of that I wasn't expecting I was expecting those issues to become more important I wasn't expecting like the, this whole like, very emotional uh, trauma the country went through even the victors are traumatised mm. that's true they do seem traumatised they, they, nor do they want to talk about anything the true, <laughs> the true sign of a trauma victim they are clammed up they don't want to talk about it very peculiar we're going to come to a close though our time is uh, all, all but up a quick reminder of your several titles my titles? Yeah, not Lord. I mean your books. Um, oh, uh, so, <laughs> sorry, just that's, that's hanging around the super rich, um, uh, getting carried away. Well, maybe it could be Professor Judah or Rabbi Judah. Um, no, but the my book on London is called "This Is London," and my book on Russia is called "Fragile Empire." You know, you've got a great series here. It should be called "This Is Russia," and then the next one, "This Is France." Yeah, I do like the name. Yeah, I can only recommend the prose and thank you to author Ben Judah. Thank you. That's all for this week. My thanks for this week to Ben Judah. Thanks to, to James Douglas and Bernie Barkley. Theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. I'm in Quentin Wolf. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.